If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Uh, we'll begin reading in chapter 18 of the book of Acts in verse 24 and be reading on into chapter 19 through verse 10. Again, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 18, beginning in uh, verse 24. Uh, one of the things that's been an encouragement to me over the course of this study of the book of Acts is uh, not only the occasional, that was a, a good sermon uh, that you preached uh, this past Sunday, that type thing, but people will say to me how intrigued or maybe informed they have been in regards uh, to the book of Acts, that, that they're listening, and in listening, uh, they uh, uh, create questions within their own heart and mind, and uh, they go to the text, and they discover more of, of God's rich truth as they, as they dive in, maybe for the first time, to the book of Acts. I mean, think about it for just a minute. Acts is a pretty long book. I've, I've told you by my own kind of uh, uh, predisposition uh, that my favorite books are the short books. Uh, I, li I like the epistles, and, and I, I like something I can just sit down and read kind of quickly and get the whole gist of the story, but Acts isn't that way. It's long. It's substantial. And, you know, the, I think back to uh, going through school, both high school and college, one thing that I avoided besides calculus and chemistry was world history. I always went to American history. You know why? There weren't near as many dates and places. And so Acts has a lot of dates and places and people. And so it's easy to get confused. And, and certainly those of us that are uh, drawn uh, to uh, the straightforward uh, doctrinal affirmations and statements of uh, Paul, Peter, John even, uh, we find ourselves drawn to other books of the Bible. So there, there's a reality that, that Acts uh, gets uh, neglected. Maybe part of it, uh, as Baptists, who are we scared of? Well, we're scared to death of the Holy Spirit, aren't we? We're afraid he might swoop down and do something dramatic among us, and we'd be scared out of our wits if that happened. Just, and and y'all chuckled. I appreciate that. Y'all are kind of on beam today. That's good. That's good. I, I'm encouraged today. But uh, uh, besides that, it, it, you know, we like things to be orderly and systematic, don't we? Just this is the way things are, this is the way they're going to be, and this is the way they'll always be. That's not the way the book of Acts unfolds for us. And so we see the writer, Luke, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, uh, putting together uh, this great narrative, the work of the apostles, I, I guess primarily you'd have to say uh, Peter first and then Paul, uh, but also the, the activity of the Holy Spirit, in, in creating the church and, and working uh, through the proclamation of the gospel to expand uh, the church into the, uh, to the known world and then weaving into the, the narrative uh, these, I, I guess maybe you'd call them secondary uh, characters. We, uh, we, we see uh, 
Stephen, that, that first martyr. We see uh, Philip the evangelist and Ananias and Cornelius and Lydia and the unnamed Philippian jailer and Titus and Timothy and Silas and Bar. I mean, it goes on and on, doesn't it? There, we don't get a lot of information about them, but their stories, uh, the, their placement in the story uh, is, uh, is intriguing. And so we, we come here today and it seems to me we might be reaching somewhat the, the apex, the pinnacle of the action of the book of Acts. Uh, Paul has initiated this third missionary journey. And uh, as we uh, look at, at his uh, time spent in Ephesus, it seems like there's kind of a, a winding down of the story uh, that's going to take him into Rome uh, under uh, house arrest. And as, as much as that, that narrative goes back and forth and up and down and all of these characters get interwoven, there's a reality that the gospel, in a sense, makes a straight line from its birthplace in Jerusalem to where Paul wants to make a, a mark and, and, and leave a testimony in the great imperial city of Rome. And so that's, that's kind of the, the story of the book of Acts. A, a lot of details, uh, but in some sense, uh, uh, one purpose. This is how the gospel went into the uttermost parts of the world, how a bunch of disenfranchised and discouraged disciples shook the entirety of the known world, and that world is still being shaken by that very same message that was first preached on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem. And so let's look, and we'll uh, see how uh, the work of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit in some sense is going to uh, uh, straddle uh, the Aegean Sea, and we're going to see great things happen both in the city of Corinth and the city of Ephesus uh, through the ministries of a man introduced to us as Apollos and our familiar friend, the Apostle Paul. Read with me in verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, uh, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and talked accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though... He knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, uh, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he had wished to get across to Achaia, uh, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures, that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, uh, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found uh, some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. 
on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And they were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And they continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. Lord, you have inspired it. Uh, through the hand, the work of this great man, Luke, we thank you that you saw fit to preserve it for us and that it is invested with your authority and your power, and that is the power of your gospel, the imperishable seed of the new birth. And God, I pray today that the spirit that inspired would now illuminate, give us the ability to understand, and Lord, we depend upon you to apply these things to our lives Lord, I pray that, that we, having gathered here today, would leave here to never be the same again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would take you back into the uh, preceding verses there, verses uh, uh, 22, 23 of uh, chapter 18. And I touched on this last week as to how Luke, in very succinct and seemingly understated uh, manner uh, describes uh, Paul's return from his second missionary journal, journey. He arrives there uh, in Caesarea, uh, presumably uh, he, the, the going up or the, he went up is descriptive of his uh, trip uh, to Jerusalem to report to the church there. Then uh, back to Antioch, uh, which seemed to be the launch point uh, for these missionary endeavors. And having spent some time there, he's going back to where he had originally intended to go on that second missionary journey. He is going uh, into what we call Turkey, uh, what in the ancient world was referred to as Asia Minor. He's going to travel uh, north and eastward. He's going to travel across the, the body of uh, that uh, peninsula referred to today as Turkey. He is ultimately uh, going to make his way there uh, to the great city of Ephesus. And so uh, we're going to pick up our narrative there as uh, Luke begins to tell us about what was going on in Ephesus after the uh, departure of Paul. Uh, he made an initial visit there when he was returning from that second missionary uh, journey. He stopped off there, spent some time, told them that his plan was to return. Now we're going to see that he is going to return. He leaves behind uh, that couple uh, that were both tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila, that we encountered over in the book uh, uh, in the city of Corinth. And so they have been left there, no doubt. They are at work both in their trade, but also in uh, the instruction uh, in regards uh, to the gospel. And so Luke picks up in verse 24 to tell us about uh, this man, Apollos, who is a, a native of the city of Alexandria, and he's going to give us quite a bit of detail about this uh, individual. Uh, we are told, first of all, that he is a Jew, 
but he is a Jew uh, from the North African city of Alexandria, a, a, an ancient city founded by Alexander the Great. It was the site of a, a great library, uh, a noteworthy uh, university. The place in where the Old Testament was translated into Greek, we call that the Septuagint. It was actually uh, the Bible of uh, the New Testament uh, uh, figures, including Jesus himself. Uh, it was the home of the Jewish philosopher uh, Philo, uh, a philosopher who sought to find uh, common ground between Judaism and uh, uh, the Greco uh, uh, or Hellenistic philosophy uh, of uh, that time. And uh, while he uh, preceded Apollos by probably five decades, uh, I think probably there was his uh, way of thinking impacted uh, this uh, young man. Uh, Alexander would later be the home of the great church father Athanasius. And so uh, we find that this uh, native of Alexandria, who is a Jew, most likely a, a Hellenized Jew. And here, here's one of the interesting things, at least to me, uh, that uh, uh, is occurring here. You have the Apostle Paul, uh, great thinker, great scholar. Uh, his background is of the strictest sect of the Pharisees. Uh, he would be uh, uh, what we might say would be a conservative Jew there. But he's going to work closely and affirm and align himself with a Hellenized Jew that most likely would have been, in terms of Jewish theology, a bit more moderate or liberal than the Apostle Paul. But they come to a consensus over the truth that that which was anticipated, that which was prophesied, that which was predicted in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ had indeed been fulfilled in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and they could work together for the good of the church, for the expansion of the gospel. And so we're told that this man, Apollos, this Jewish man, who was from this great city of northern Africa, of Alexandria, that first of all, he was eloquent. There's a bit of debate over the translation of the word. Some of, you may even have a Bible that says he was a learned man, okay? And both would be true, but it seems like maybe the emphasis is on his ability uh, to speak well. I think I mentioned this Wednesday night. This, uh, not at any fault of Apollos, but may have been kind of a, a bit of a spark uh, when he goes to Corinth that uh, allowed for others to come in and criticize Paul because this Apollos talked really well. He was eloquent. Now, again, that's not a, to dismiss his expertise in the Word of God, but he was an eloquent man, and their indictment of Paul was what? You don't talk so good. You don't talk so good. You don't sound quite right. You don't please our ears. But, but uh, Apollos was a well-spoken man, but he was also what? He was competent in uh, the Scriptures. And, and the word there is dunatos. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a real legitimate exegesis and exposition and application of the word. But usually when we see this word, what do we say about the word dunitas? That dunitas is the source of the word dynamite. And in fact, sometimes I think some of the translation says what? He was what? Mighty. He was powerful in the Scriptures. 
Uh, that is, that he was knowledgeable and that he was uh, well-spoken when it comes to the Word of God, that, that he was competent, that, that he had been, next thing, that he had been instructed, that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That word instructed is catecho. It's a word from which we get uh, the English word catechism. Okay, uh, that type of teaching that uses questions and answers. You see them in a lot of the uh, uh, the old confessions. They'll have an, a, a a companion catechism. Sometimes uh, one for children and and sometimes for the adults in the church. And I think questions and answers that is catechism is a great way to be instructed. Your brain that will stick to your brain. You know we talk about food sometimes that'll stick to your ribs. Well, I'm telling you, one way to learn something is do by, do by uh, the na- using questions and answers, and that'll stick to your brain. And if it sticks to your brain, it's got a good chance of doing what? Of sinking on down to your heart. Okay? It's got to go through your brain before it gets to your heart. Okay? Too many times in the church, we think that if we get people emotionally whipped up into a frenzy that we've done something. Well, you haven't. Okay? The Word of God has to be processed and understood so that it will be applied appropriately uh, to the heart of the individual. Now, the question becomes, okay, this eloquent man who Luke refers to as competent in regards to the Scriptures uh, had received instruction, and he was a fervent man. he He was passionate. Now, Everybody has, as far as a pastor or a preacher, has a style. Uh, for, for, for better or for worse, I tend to get caught up in the moment. I, I, my style uh, has a little passion to it. Uh, and I do very little in life. Uh, that, that I don't, I'm, if, I, if I'm doing it, typically I'm passionate about it. Okay? It's, it's kind of the way it, it, it works. Okay? the way God wired me up. Now, a lot of people are, are very good at kind of remaining dispassionate, and they, they maybe talk a little more clearly and with a bit, little more level volume and tone. Well, that ain't me. But, you know, I'm, I'm for it, if, if you can get it. But, but he, he, he had a passion for what God had taught him, and I, I think that that passion worked its way out in speaking to others, in, in instructing others. And, and here's the thing. I don't believe that we can be deeply in love with the Lord Jesus, deeply convinced of the necessity of his person and work, and not be passionate about it. That, that we can be dismissive. Listen, there's a guy named Jesus died on the cross, salvation of the world, take it or leave it, I don't care what you do. That is not the way that we speak of the gospel that we're deeply interested in the reality that there are people that are persisting in their lost state, that, that they are content, that we want to shake them out of their contentment, of their unbelief, and we want to persuade them. And again, it's fundamentally not emotional, but at the same time, most of the things that we do, that we do well at some level, our emotions are engaged in the endeavor. Right? And so, we want to persuade people to move from unbelief to belief. And so this man was fervent. He had a 
fire. Paul says of himself, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. For some reason, and I don't know why, I don't know if people are looking at my driver's license, they're looking at pictures of me from UNA, and then they look at me now, but they assume that I'm kind of approaching retirement age. I don't, I don't get it exactly. That, that I, I don't, do I look like I'm about finished? Oh, I do. I shouldn't have asked a question I didn't want to. You know, what do they say about attorneys? Never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. But again, we, we want to have a passion uh, about this, and I still have a passion, and I feel this way. Woe to me if I can't spend my week in preparation and soaking in the Word of God so I can stand here and tell you this is real, this is true, this is powerful, this is necessary. You need this. As Jeremiah said, what? I've got a, a fire. He didn't say, listen... I, I, you know, in, in 3,000 years, they're going to in, in, in invent this thing called a cool pack. You keep it in your freezer and you stick it in your stuff to keep it cool. I got a cool pack in my belly. I'm cool. That ain't what he said, was it? I got a fire in my bones. It will consume me if I do not speak the truth of the Word of God. And I think that's something of this man, Apollos. And so we're told now... He spoke, and he talked accurately the things concerning Jesus. And then this, this thing that, that throws us, at least it throws me for a loop. I know all of y'all are scholars, and y'all got it figured out. Don't explain it to me. I'll just, I'll just persist in my... Though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, I, I think bab, the, knowing only the baptism of John is, is a, a figurative of speech in saying that he only knew what John preached or only knew the theology, the doctrine of the forerunner of Jesus, that, that great prophet that closed out the Old Covenant era, that bridged old and new, uh, John uh, the Baptist. And so he was able, Apollos, because he had been well instructed by someone that we don't know, possibly at some level, uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, but possibly others, that he was able to look at the Old Testament and that John the Baptist had given them the key. Now, again, he's, uh, Apollos is coming on the scene two or three decades after John had passed off of the scene, that he had been martyred, okay? We're looking at mid-50s, and John is uh, dead by about 30 A.D. So time had passed, but for whatever reason, there persisted uh, those that had been instructed and informed and indoctrinated in the, the way of, of John, and they understood and they anticipated a Savior, okay? And so Apollos spoke well and spoke accurately of what he knew, which was predictive in terms of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hard to know if he knew everything that John knew because John does what? Oh, wait a minute. Behold, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Okay? And so, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to know, but what he knew he was accurate in, I think the correct term is to say that Apollos 
uh, was incomplete in his uh, knowledge of, of everything that was fulfilled in the actual person, the historical, the incarnate uh, Lord uh, Jesus Christ. But he spoke, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. He began to, began to speak of the things that he knew. Probably beginning with speaking in terms of the Old Covenant being temporary and preparatory and had largely become something that uh, was in name only, that, that, that the, the Old Covenant uh, religion, so to speak, with its emphasis upon law and sacrifice, had become uh, a way that was characterized uh, by self-righteousness and what we might call as nominalism, something that existed in name only, that, that it no longer uh, was powerful uh, in the lives of those who made the claim uh, to being Jews. And having known those things, like John the Baptist, he said that you need to repent of your reliance upon dead works, that it is not enough to go through the motions prescribed in the Old Covenant, and that in fact that era is, is coming uh, to a close. And this baptism that John practiced was a baptism that says, in a sense, not only am I a sinner, it certainly says that, but my adherence, my allegiance, uh, my confidence in this old way under the old covenant has passed. And I am now relying upon that which is promised, namely the coming one, the coming Lamb of God who will indeed take away the sins of the world. That yes indeed what was promised in the old covenant is being fulfilled or will be fulfilled from the perspective of John the Baptist in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's speaking boldly. Uh, it's hard to know if he's still saying Jesus is the one coming. Uh, it would seem like he probably said Jesus is the one who has come. He's the one that John identified but still did not have complete knowledge of everything involved. Now here's what's cool, I think. Most likely, Apollos was well-schooled, well-educated in, in, in these ivory towers of Alexandria. And here comes this couple, presumably with no formal training. They're tent makers. And they don't call him out in public, it seems like. You know, like, like you know, sometimes in the church, um, we're like six-gun Sal. Google it, you'll figure out who he was. We're like six-gun Sal gunning for the fastest gun around, okay? And we want to publicly take down whoever's on the Internet or whoever's that big church over there, or whoever's in our church. We just want to destroy them. No. This couple says, can we talk to you? There's a concern. And so this well-schooled, prominent, well-respected, well-received man is willing to hear from this very humble pair of tent makers. Here is the rest of the story. 
Here, here is how the story is completed. And it has been completed. That one that John promised, the one he identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he has come, he has lived, and he has died, and he has been raised again. And he lives to intercede for us at the right hand of uh, the Father. And so, he receives this instruction. And he evidently is well instructed, and he is able, again, like, like Paul, to take the whole package of everything that he has learned in terms of uh, the Old Testament, uh, and he's able to see it now through the, the lens of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees with clarity that which the Old Testament was looking forward to, and he is able to speak eloquently in the full truth, the full-color testimony to uh, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so, for whatever reason, verse 27, he's not particularly content to stay there at Ephesus. He wants to cross the bay there, so to speak, and go into Achaia to go over uh, to Corinth, and he actually gets a, a letter of introduction uh, to go to, to go there so that uh, uh, the brothers of the church of, of Corinth would welcome him uh, there. And notice there, verse 27 in the middle, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And I, I love Luke's terminology. You know, uh, it, you know like, like I told you, sometimes he says things real uh, in an understated way just to, before you go, well, wait a minute, there's more there. But here he doesn't say just the church at Corinth or those that Paul had ministered to, but he tells us that there's a church formed by the grace of God there in Corinth, that, that God had been at work through the proclamation of this man, uh, the apostle Paul, and because of God's grace, uh, they believed. And so while he's there, verse 28, he powerfully refuted uh, the Jews in public. And so, again, this man uh, is no just uh, laid-back, you know, armchair-type philosopher. He's in the public square, seemingly. Remember, there had already been the dispute, the expulsion. Uh, so to whatever degree he was going to have uh, interaction with the Jews, it was evidently going to be uh, in public. It wasn't going to be in the synagogue because uh, these Christ followers were not going to be welcome there anymore. But he's powerfully dismantling their false presuppositions, okay? And like we, we've gone down this road many, many times. And I, I just put a thing on my Facebook page. And, and you know, I, I love R.C. Sproul, and, 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 and he would amen our practice of baptism now. He knows the truth, okay? And, and like all of us, Okay, his theology was perfected when he saw Jesus, and mine will, and yours will too. We we all uh, are not perfect in in our understanding. Okay, but but Sproul notes something about apologetics, and he talked about the opportunity to speak to an atheist society. And he he said, well, you know, I'm just gonna put my cards on the table. Uh, listen, 
their problem is not that they don't know there's a God. So the Apostle Paul is very clear. All men, all places, all times, they know there's a God. Their problem is not intellectual. God has revealed himself, and they have got the revelation. They understand there's a God. They just don't like him. Their problem is not intellectual. Their problem is moral. Spiritual, I would add. And, and so, but there is, I mean, Sproul goes on, that fundamentally, no one's going to be saved until God changes their heart. And we understand that. We understand there must be a work of the Spirit. But there is the opportunity for preliminary work, and there is opportunity for work to continue to build up the church by proving and disman- proving the truth and dismantling falsehood. Why have we lost three generations in my lifetime? Young people go off to universities to get smart, and they come back idiots. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Now, it's on us, twofold. One, the shallow evangelism that sent off unregenerate kids to public school. And, you know, if you're lost, what difference does it make? Okay? We sent off unregenerate kids that... We, we put it, don't, you, don't, you don't want me to go there. I'll just, you know what I'm talking about. So we baptized them and sent them away. They're unregenerate. And they had no clue as to how to refute the gobbledygook and the hogwash of the world. Okay? And they believed the lie because they had not been built up in the truth. And the truth is rational and reasonable because it's true. Truth conforms to what? Reality. Now, I've told you one of the problems we've got in the culture now is what? We have divorced life from reality. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. In what world has that ever made a lick of sense? And there is a group of people in our culture today that says that is true. That does not conform to reality, folks. So the truth conforms to reality. That's why it's really, if you'll try, it's really not hard to teach people the truth. Okay? Because it's consistent with our experience. Okay? Okay. So, Apollos goes to Corinth. He dismantles the objections of the Jews in public. How? Not just give an opinion demonstrating from the Word of God. Because what? He's knowledgeable in terms of the Word of God. What's one of our fundamental problems as a church today? We don't know. We don't know. And here, and here's maybe the sadder testimony. We're blissful in our ignorance. We're even proud of it at times. Right? Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, we've got Apollos. He was in Ephesus. He was well instructed. He was, his, his, his faith, in a sense, the content of his faith was completed uh, by these tent makers. He's on his way to Corinth. God is using him. All right, let's, let's skip over to chapter 19 now. Paul returns to Ephesus. Now, maybe it's just me, but I'm usually right, so it can be me. 
Okay. All right. All right. And it happened. Oh, it just so happened. You know, Paul just happened to be in Ephesus. You know, that rascal, he's liable to pop up anywhere, isn't he? But God, in the leadership of the Holy Spirit and his all-wise providence, has the right man in the right place at the right time with the right message to the right people. Okay? And so Paul is in Ephesus, this ancient city. Again, we, and you remember me talking about people and places? You've got Alexandria, uh, you've got Jerusalem, you've got Antioch, you've got Ephesus, you've got Corinth, you've got Athens, all of these places uh, that, that, that Paul is, is uh, painting the gospel on uh, through the efforts of these uh, early uh, apostles. And so, uh, so uh, Apollos is at Corinth. Paul uh, winds up passing from east to west, traveling from Antioch. He comes to Ephesus, and he finds some disciples. And it is here that we're rather intrigued. Whose disciples? Whose disciples does he find? I mean, now, we're all good King James Christians. We see, we see disciple, and what do we think? Well, that's followers of Jesus. That's who the disciples were. Well, if they, they were, they, they were, again, incomplete followers. So, and again, you can read all the commentaries that I read, and nobody knows for sure what was going on with this group. Who, who had discipled them? Uh, Aquila and, and Priscilla? Uh, Apollos? Uh, somebody from Pentecost? Uh, Paul, when he came through there initially? Uh, we, we don't know. But when he finds them, uh, he begins to ask them some questions, Okay. And so uh, uh, he finds the disciples, and, and he asks them th this first question, verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, uh, that leads to monumental issues. Now, please understand me. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been regenerated, you've been sealed, you've been indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Period. Objectively true. Okay, that, that, is, that is, you cannot say I'm an unspiritual Christian. I, I, I believe in Jesus, I just don't have the Holy Spirit. That, that, there's no such thing, okay? But here in the book of Acts, we see this kind of phenomenon, and it's somewhat of a strange phenomenon, and we have different explanations as to why God chose to, to work uh, at this uh, particular time in regards to uh, the exercise of faith, which... I believe still that the Holy Spirit was in operation for them to be believers, that they were regenerate, okay, but not necessarily indwelled in the way the post-Pentecost believers were, okay? And so, uh, now, so, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, never heard of Him. Never heard of Him. Don't even know what you're, don't even, don't even know what you're talking about. And then verse 3 said, well, into what then were you baptized? Well, we're baptized into John's baptism. So here's another group uh, that's been informed with a tradition that has descended from John, which was evidently good and accurate and applicable for its time. But again, time has passed Jesus has come, he has died, he has been raised, and so the fullness of everything that John was looking forward to 
has been completed. And so they need to know that it's been completed. And you need to receive and you need to believe and you need to accept and you need to apply and you need to live in view of that which has been accomplished in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he explains the nature of John's baptism, which we referred to earlier there in verse uh, 4. John baptized with a baptism of repentance. Now remember, the Jews were God's chosen people. So if you were to be doing an evangelism explosion uh, in ancient uh, Palestine and you were to go up and say, uh, what would you say to, uh, to uh, Peter if he stands outside the pearly gates and asks you the question, uh, why should I let you into heaven? And you say, well, I'm a good Jew. I'm a, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a, a covenant-keeping, faithful uh, member of the community. Wrong. Go to hell. Go straight to hell. Do not collect $200. Do not pass, pass go. Whole nine yards. Nope, 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 nope. Okay? Again, the old covenant Jew was saved by God's grace through faith in the fulfillment of his promise, which had now been fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. John baptized with a view that you need to repent of your belief that something about your identity in, in terms of your nationality or your practice is going to be acceptable to God. What have I told you before? Yeah, you need to repent of all those terrible things that all of us agree are terrible, but you may need to repent of the things that are good or that we might define as good that you think make you acceptable to God because nothing you have, nothing you do, nothing of what you are will ever make you acceptable to God. It is only the person who work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only being dressed in the robes of His righteousness that makes us faultless to stand before the throne of God. And so again, it's a danger of, you know, like I say, we love to pick on the Catholics and the Church of Christ, but we need to pick on ourselves. If your evangelism allows somebody to, when answering the question about their salvation, well, this is what I did to be saved, they're in danger immediately. Because you didn't do anything to be saved. You received God's grace upon the merits of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Okay? If you're relying on something you did, you got a serious problem. Okay? So, <clears throat> now, verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they were, they were twice baptized. They were double dunked. Okay. Now, you know, some people do this triple dunking thing. We don't do triple dunking here, but we do wait for three bubbles to come up, okay? Just so, so if, you're, if you're a candidate for baptism, you, we're going to get three bubbles out of you. We're not going to dunk you three times, okay? Okay. So, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then what happened? Verse 6, Paul laid his hands on them. And the Holy Spirit came, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Okay. God uniquely, during the formation of the church, uh, the spread of the gospel, did on occasion differentiate between conversion and the coming of the Spirit in His fullness. And we, I, I don't have time this morning to trace it all the way through. We could do that. But... Uh, you remember the story of the, uh, the gospel coming to the Samaritans, the gospel coming to the Gentiles, the distinction between conversion and the apostles coming and the laying on of hands and these miraculous signs being a testimony that what? 
These Samaritans and these Gentiles have been included in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is now one thing, one expression of the kingdom of God, and that is namely the church. The church formed by the proclamation of the gospel and the work, the unifying work of God's Holy Spirit. Okay, And so this was indeed uh, a sign that that old had passed away, that this new thing, uh, the church, was now uh, in effect and was at work and that, that God was going to save uh, both Jew and Gentile, okay? And so they were uh, fully uh, informed uh, as to the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes beyond the scope of what we can do today. I'll just, you don't go to the book of Acts and prove that you need a second blessing that you haven't been converted if you don't speak in tongues, that if you're baptized with the Spirit, you'll... No, none of that stuff washes if you'll just read the text, okay? And so if you've got questions about that, go look at it. May, I may take some of it up Tuesday uh, when we come back to unpacking uh, the sermon. Moving forward to verse 8. So upon this, Paul continues to minister in Ephesus. He goes to the synagogue takes them three months to figure him out. They were a little slow, a little slow on the uptake. But they do figure him out, and they kick him out. And so he is, we see that boldly. He can be bold because what it, he's handling the truth. He's, he's presenting the truth of the gospel, okay? And remember that we've talked about reasoning, dialegami. He's dialoguing. He's answering questions, okay? And he's seeking to persuade, not just take it or leave it, guys. If you want to be a Jew and die and go to hell, be a Jew and die and go to hell. No, he's passionately seeking to persuade them of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, as always, there are those that stand opposed to the gospel. We see that in verse 9. They're stubborn, and they continue in their unbelief. And so what does Paul do? He goes somewhere else. We saw uh, last week shaking the dust off their feet. He moves, and he goes to this, we don't know who Tyrannus was, uh, uh, some people would say that the etymology of the word is uh, uh, the tyrant. And so uh, evidently this may have been some type of sophist or lecturer or some philosopher of some type that had a lecture hall and his students called him the tyrant. Does anybody remember any teachers in, in the course of their academic work that they would say, the, you're the tyrant? Well, I, I can name probably a few, okay? And so that, that may be where the name uh, comes from. But Paul is going to camp out there. He's going to have two years to preach uh, the gospel, the, the residents of Asia. Evidently, uh, the emphasis is on he, he found this uh, city that stood at the crossroads of both east and west and north and south so that people would pass through and they would be going uh, into uh, the, the mainland, the continent of Asia, all through Asia Minor, and they would have heard the word of the Lord. That is, he, he taught it and he preached it and he reasoned with them, he, he persuaded them, he indicted them on the basis of the law, he convinced them of the truth of the gospel, he equipped them uh, so uh, that they would not uh, easily depart from the truth, he delivered to them the faith once and all, delivered uh, to the saints, he, he taught them uh, so that they would be built up and be mature, so they would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and cunning that would come their way. He was deeply rooting them, grounding them in the truth of the Word of God, which is, again, establishes 
our pattern for ministry in the church, that, that we want you well-informed and, and well-persuaded and, and, and able to, to refute the lie and unpack the truth so that people may know the truth so that you're encouraged by the fact that you believe the truth and that you can speak and live boldly in this present stage. And so we see, again, work in two cities, the full revelation, full testimony uh, to the gospel. God is going to work uh, powerfully. Uh, Ephesus is going to be a great center uh, for the church for many centuries. Corinth, not so much. Uh, Corinth is going to struggle. Paul's going to have to deal, uh, deal with them in a remedial fashion uh, over the course of the, the next uh, a few years. Uh, but yet again, uh, they, they heard uh, this uh, great, great truth, this great testimony. Uh, the gospel was powerful and effective uh, among them. And again, they were grounded by those that were both willing to receive instruction uh, to know uh, the, the Word of God, to know the God of the Word, and they were confident enough to speak that truth to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the truth of your Word, uh, for the power of the gospel. Lord, this, this gospel that was so powerful and, and so effective in years past, in places different from ours. Uh, Lord, we believe it to be that same powerful and effective message today. Lord, as we prepare to, by way of, of symbol, by way of, of sacrament, to uh, remember uh, the sacrifice of our Savior, uh, to experience the, the fullness of His power and to anticipate uh, the day of His physical, of His body, His visible return. Uh, Lord, I pray that You would indeed uh, prepare our hearts uh, as we continue uh, to worship the One who uh, by His grace and for His glory has saved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.